Rainer Maria Rilke, uh, Our Inner Seasons, uh, from The Crow Flies Backwards. Uh, how we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage, ponds, meadows, our inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home. Please sit comfortably. You know, our pain and our difficulty, um, in some ways it's, it's the way of difficulty um, to practice. It's a steep uh, path, the path of being exactly present to where you are. And, uh, but repeatedly doing that through practice uh, begins to uh, open you wider and wider. Uh, more world than self <laughs> that sits there. Uh, world that sits there. The seasons also has a meaning in terms of the unfolding of our way through uh, a lifetime. Uh, periods of our lives that are marked by uh, particular passions, preoccupations, uh, relationships, um, these in themselves, the way uh, unfolds um, through time. Uh, at the same time and without a breath separate, uh, it is this right now, with no unfolding, no time at all. We call it this moment, but it's just a convenient fiction. It's a name for something which is vast uh, and unnameable. So both of these go together. How do they go together? It's a mystery. If you try to explain it, you separate from it. So it's good to let go of conceptions and explanations and that, and uh, just settle in uh, right where you are. That's the integrity of it. Uh, this is Khan for winter, <laughs> so it's uh, seasonal. So Raina Maria Rilke, I uh, lived from 1875 to 1926. And um, this is a period of huge creative ferment, uh, the birth of modernism in the arts, and uh, Rilke sits, you know, right across that late Romantic spectrum, right through into modernism. And uh, uh, so along with him, I mean, so much is going on. You've got Picasso, Stravinsky, Yeats, uh, Eliot, uh, Einstein, uh, all that scientific ferment, the, the, in a way, the birth of relativity. All this is going on across those years. It's a marvellous time. It also corresponds to the First World War, perhaps the most devastating of all uh, wars, is in the same period. 
Rilke is regarded as one of the greatest German poets in company with Goethe and Hölderlin. He wrote, he wrote in both German and French. He wrote prolifically in French as well as in German. Hundreds of poems in French, actually. Uh, his Duino Elegies, which are this set of ten uh, great poems, are the summit of his uh, poetic career, and almost certainly his greatest work, were completed in 1922. Um, they're dazzlingly obscure, uh, and they express themes of existential suffering and alienation. But at points, they evoke a reality uh, which yearns for us to give it expression. I mean, perhaps one of the strongest themes of the allergies is the fact that the the earth calls out for expression. Um, I mean, his way of expressing it is the earth needs us. And to complete the cycle, of course, we are nothing without earth itself. But he's so strong in this area, and it's very much like uh, Zen writing a lot of the allergies. So for, that was his mission to respond to that as a poet, but it's very clear from his writing that uh, it's an invitation for us all to, to express that matter, uh, to express that vastness. And Rilke himself, uh, actually on the Isle of Capri, no less in 1909, had an experience which, if you read it, is very much like a Zen Kensho experience, which I certainly feel influenced uh, his later poetry. There are now more than 20 translations of the Duino Elegies into English. This is indicative of how popular these challenging works have become in the English-speaking world, especially in the United States. Rilke is seen as a spiritual guide, with quotes from his work turning up frequently in New Age literature. Profound images of no self in the self-help section of the bookshop. So I'll read you just a little bit from the ninth Duino Allergy. This comes from the tenth, by the way, which is just a fragmentary um, version of the tenth Allergy, written ten years before the Allergy was completed. So not only does the way take a long time, poetry takes a long time uh, here. So ten years later, before this becomes the final thing. But this is the early version. Uh, the, our quote from for this afternoon. So, but this is from the ninth, this little quote. Truly being here is so much, because everything here apparently needs us. This fleeting world, which in some strange way keeps calling to us. Us, the most fleeting of all. Once for each thing, just once, no more. And we too, just once, and never again. But to have been this once completely, even if only once, to have been at one with the earth seems beyond undoing. There you have the way uh, 
beautifully expressed. I mean, Rilke is also writing in the period of uh, his, con his life overlaps with uh, Nietzsche's uh, life, the, uh, the death of God, um, all the spiritual crisis around Christianity uh, is also uh, his. It's also the time when Buddhism comes uh, into the West, especially through Germany. And um, so it's very much in that, and he writes uh, you know, Buddhist poems as a poem uh, to the, uh, the Buddha uh, himself uh, earlier in the, in the collection. So he's very much caught up in that very nascent Buddhism of the late 19th century, early 20th century. And a little bit further down, for when the traveller returns from the mountain slopes into the valley, he brings not a handful of earth, unsayable to others, but instead some word he has gained, some pure word, the yellow and blue gentian. Perhaps we are here in order to say house, bridge, fountain, gate, pitcher, fruit tree, window. At most, column, tower. But to say them, you must understand, oh, to say them more intensely than the things themselves ever dreamed of existing. So you evoke uh, through words, but each word itself uh, contains the universe. Each word itself is expressive of that whole. So it's it's a it's a strange mission in a way. But I think it is also important. Uh, giving expression uh, is a form of reverence uh, for the earth, for the things of the earth. So he says, how, how we squander our hours of pain. Um, the point here is that, you know, leg pain, which is what we experience uh, here in uh, Sazenkai. Uh, heart pain, uh, with the remembrance of things that bring sadness uh, to us. Uh, these are, for him and for us, an opportunity. Um, but how he presents it, we're always looking beyond. We're always saying, well, what comes next? There must be something better than this. Um, or how can I get out of here? Um, or uh, these are... But he's saying that squandering is the, the loss of the opportunity to simply be present, to simply include uh, what is. In this case, what is difficult and confronting. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. 
you know, it's consoling in a way to know that that pain and suffering mostly does uh, end. But it's kind of cold comfort when you are in it. Um, it feels very thin, that notion. So good to address what is here um, just uh, as it is. Jacobak says, practice brings us to such fruitful suffering and helps us to stay with it. When we do, at some point the suffering begins to transform itself and the water begins to flow. Mm. Uh, Dotsi Bernasova in the talk she gave last year said, I decided to stop running away from my pain. I realised no matter which way I positioned my legs, they would still hurt. So one night I decided to keep them still and let the pain do what it was meant to do, even if it wanted to kill me. After only a few seconds of not moving, the pain became worse. But I was determined, I remained still and focused on the pain, and after some intense discomfort, the pain became burning, then the burning started melting, and then it was gone and I fell asleep. Through Zen practice we learn to stay present not only to our pain but also to our uncertainties, uh, our unrequitement, our disappointments. So there's physical pain but there is also emotional pain. Uh, mountains of pain, waters of shame. Gradually we learn to be in the present. Um, that is so simple and yet so challenging. It's said that Shakyamuni Buddha during his long vigil under the Bodhi tree sat with the Khan, why do we suffer? Surely he sought a path that would lead to our release from the suffering and anguish of sickness, old age and death. After all, these were the issues that had pressed him, pushed him to seek enlightenment in the first place. With his awakening, which occurred when he looked up and saw the morning star, the Buddha is said to have exclaimed, Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. This one, this. Each of you should do the same, it's not just me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This one! <laughs> yeah. He avoids saying me. <laughs> it's like for the experience he needs, a, he needs another designation, another word, another way of conveying the vastness of that experience. So it, it avoids the personal pronoun. Um, yeah. Now I see that... Now I see that all beings are the Tathagata. Now I see that each being is the Tathagata each and all. It's personal.
So from this, he came to realization also as to why we suffer. He said, now I see that each being is this. It is just their delusions and attachments that prevent them from seeing it. This is very important. It's like being Tathagata, being this, is a birthright. You know, it's timeless. It's not something which is just acquired by doing some zazen or acquired in some awakening experience. That experience is ancient. It's timeless. You just open to it. In terms of the tradition, we suffer because we are, in terms of the Mahayana, Northern Buddhist schools, with the Theravada, uh, the basis, what kicks off the wheel of birth and death, what kicks off karma, is craving. Um, for Mahayana, it is um, ignorance that kicks off. It doesn't really matter where you, which one kicks it off. Uh, e- either is a good starting point. Ignorance about the nature of the self, ignorance about the nature of reality and our relation to it. In particular, the Buddha taught, we suffer because we are caught up in dualistic conceptions of self and other. Um, I'd, li- I'd, like <laughs> I'd like $5 for every time I've said this, but this is Yasutani's uh, You know, the fundamental delusion of humanity is I am in here and you are out there. For him, that's a fundamental delusion. And the roots of this uh, go back to the Buddha. And with the realisation that came on seeing the morning star, that matter was resolved uh, for him. So I am in here and you are out there. You are in here and I am out there. Well, you can play with it. (laughs) You know, in a way we sit like a mountain, but we are also the waters themselves. When you sit and sit, you begin to be aware that your notion of self begins to dissolve. So sit like a mountain, but flow like the waters. Uh, you begin to feel the impermanence of all of our conceptions of who we are, really, at depth. Uh, So watching the arising and falling of conceptions also uh, helps to clear the way here. Um, This teaching is very, very strong in in Vipassana at Theravada, teaching the solubility of notions of self, Um, also a great path.
It's important not to valorize uh, suffering. It's good to acknowledge it. You know, when we sit and we're beset with memories of, of failure, of anxieties about the future, it's important to notice them for what they are, but um, also important not to valorize them, to overvalue them. Just taking the next breath, even in the midst of that. It's also good not to run the kind of perfectionism that Zen can encourage. I think if the practice is misinterpreted, it can encourage a kind of perfectionism. Um, and I think this also happens in societies where things are maybe largely stable. Um, it's that kind of perfectionism that says, if only this person wasn't in the band, everything would be OK. okay. Yeah, most of the time things are, a lot of the time things are OK, you know? Um, and it's, they could just be made a little bit better. Um, so notice that last 1%, you know, because there's a lot of trouble around that last uh, 1%. Uh, and this is a form of suffering too, both personal and for other people, um, people close to us sometimes. So if we could just get rid of the fly and the ointment, um, everything would be okay. Uh, but the fly lives and dies in the ointment and is embalmed there. Uh, so. Good to get over that. I mean, sweating the small is a form of suffering, often far more pervasive than large um, issues. Generally, Zen is great at dealing with the large. Um, grief, uh, death, are huge uh, challenges that come up in our lives. Zen is great. If you are a person of the way, uh, it's wonderful in those contexts. It's probably sometimes not so good when it's very nuanced. Um, and, uh, we need to be careful. Um, so carrying things lightly, when we can carry them lightly. How are you going to carry this lightly?
inborn landscape. Wonderful expression. Inborn landscape. Listen. Inborn landscape. Chen Yun, uh, innermost. It's timeless, it's infinite, it's our birthright. It readily includes ducks, geese, swans, grebes, pelicans, cormorants, ibises, egrets, herons, as well as frogs and platypuses, freshwater turtles, water dragons and snakes, as well as us and all our mammalian uh, Companions to boot. This is saving all beings. Inborn landscape is vast. This is saving all beings by including them in our heart-mind, as our heart-mind. Yet they are already saved, even as we are when we open to them. Saving is a two-way business, actually multi-way business. Compassion for others arises from intimacy with our own pain. With this we become more available and more open to others indeed to all beings. We notice this in our dealings with others. Often, when we are happy, or at least pleased with ourselves, we aren't there for others at all. Very interesting, that. Their needs bounce off our hard surfaces and can feel, from their perspective, like belly flopping into a bright, cold pool. This is not a way of saying, don't be happy. But sometimes we, we tend to be impervious when we're maybe unduly pleased with ourselves. However, when we're sad, our heart is maybe more open to others and we find ourselves more available, giving their car a push when their battery is flat 
or childminding the kids when they're having an emergency. Often sadness, what Rilke calls uh, winter enduring foliage of dark emotion, were often much more available coming from there than from our more okay states. With his image of the inborn landscape where birds and reed-dwelling creatures are at home, Rilke speaks for the warmth, inclusiveness and compassion of the heart, which opens when we are willing to be with our own suffering. Creatures, no less than other human beings, make a beeline for such love. Rilke speaks for this surely, but he also speaks for something more. But what is your genuine and inborn landscape 